Well, once again, good morning. It's good to see everyone with us this morning. Everyone's had a good morning so far, anyway. We're going to continue on our study this morning. We're going to pick up with uh, Lesson 13 on page 79, if you'd like to turn there. The title of the lesson this morning is, And Why Call Ye Me Lord, Lord, And Do Not the Things Which I Say. So that's what we're going to discuss today. The text is Luke 6, verse 46. And uh, we'll try to follow the outline of the book as close as we can. Uh, there'll be a little odds and ends thrown in here and there, but you should be able to follow without too much problem. We want to look at his first topic that he has is the question is addressed to those who have a divided allegiance. And we know when we look back at Luke 6 and 46, that's what he's discussing there, the idea of essentially not following Christ completely, the idea of being divided. Christ is not speaking to those who are his enemies when he's talking about this, to those that ignore him or to those who are neutral about him. And we see that in the world today. We have those who profess to be atheists and are opposed to Christianity. We have those that say they're really not atheists, but they're not religious, they're agnostic, and it really doesn't matter to them one way or the other. We have those, of course, in the same vein that are neutral. But in this instance, Christ is talking to those who are professing to be faithful, but in reality aren't. He's speaking to those who are, as we heard the term before, lukewarm. To those that want to do just enough to be saved. We often get so caught up in our physical life, we forget our allegiance to Christ, but he says that is not enough. When we look at Matthew 6 and verse 24, it says, no man can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon here is a Chaldee word, which interpreted means wealth. We cannot serve God and wealth, is how the scripture reads. But it goes further than that. This word actually means anything that is symbolic, or anything that we trust in, other or above God. That may be our wealth, as it's described here. It may be other things that we put value in, things that we put first. As we talked about before, anything that we put above God becomes our God. So we're talking about the divided allegiance here. We cannot have more than one God. Scripture tells us that God is a jealous God. It doesn't mean he's subject to the petty jealousies that we have. That means he will not tolerate being second. God is the maker and the creator. God gave everything. God sustains everything from day to day. We read that in the scriptures. Everything that we have, everything that we receive comes from God. And for that, then he asks our allegiance. The statement condemns lukewarmness. To the Lord, this sin is despised more than outright opposition. 
Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16. It says, I know your works that are neither cold nor hot. I would that you are either cold or hot because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. I will spit you out of my mouth. He says here, I would rather you be cold than to be lukewarm. We notice here that the Lord did not single out individual Christians when he was making this discussion. He was talking about the congregation at Laodicea. This was a direct condemnation, not just of an individual person, but of an entire congregation. Not because they had totally left God, not because their sins were so bad that he couldn't stand it, but because they were lukewarm. So how would we feel if the church here at Midway received a condemnation like this directly from Christ? Would we take that serious? Would we understand the implication that he's making on this? If we were to receive such a thing, would we do more good works? Would we have more teachers among our members? Would we speak out to the community more about Christ? Or, like Laodicea, will we just fade into history? That's what he's discussing here. That's what he's talking about. Laodicea was located in, on a major trade route and had many rich residents, including some Christians. The emperor of the Roman Empire arranged trade routes that were convenient, and it went through the city of Laodicea. Land routes, sea routes, they all converged in this one city. And as you can imagine, at the time that we're talking about here, people in that city became incredibly wealthy. All the trade coming in and all the trade going out, then we often talk about the idea of a middleman, right? This is the middleman. This is where you want to be if you're in finance. You have no expenses, but you make great profit. All you're doing is taking something that someone else has and finding a buyer and moving the merchandise. So everything you make is profit. That's what these people lived in, and that's what was corrupting them. The emperor at the time, Domitian, enforced worship of emperors and their families, and he persecuted those who did not participate in that. Although the Jewish people were exempt from participating, Christians were not. And as their profession as tradesmen, this persecution prohibited their ability to buy and sell. So many of the Laodicea Christians compromised their faith in such ways that caused Christ to say, then I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. They let their worldly riches interfere with their eternal riches. If we as Christians are lukewarm, then our church is lukewarm, right? You cannot have a lukewarm church without lukewarm Christians. One goes with the other. Now, I'll be honest. In preparing this lesson, this lesson kind of stepped on my toes a little bit. And we're probably going to step on some toes a little bit when we present this lesson today. 
because it's a serious matter. When we look at ourselves and how is our attendance for Bible study, for morning worship, for evening worship, unfortunately, many won't attend all the services that we have here. We have many across the world, across the country, who still cling to the idea that we talked about last time about distance worship. Stop and think about this. The Lord went all the way to the cross for us. But yet many times we're not willing to leave our own houses for him. Good warm, right? We want to come to worship when it's convenient. But we don't want to come to worship when maybe we have friends coming or our favorite TV show is on or we want to go on vacation or we have a ball game out of town or we can come up with a million excuses for not coming to worship. But none of those excuses are going to be good enough. How is our personal Bible study? How much time do we spend in God's Word when we're away from this building? How often do we pick up the Bible and read and study? And we've discussed this before. There's a significant difference between reading the Scriptures and studying the Scriptures. If you're in school and you had a major test coming up back when I was in school, Every six weeks, we had a big test, right? When you're in college, at the end, end of quarters when I was there, semesters these days, there's always a big test. It always counts a lot to your grade. If you have that big test coming up, are you going to read that material? Or are you going to study that material? Right? That could be the difference of whether you pass or fail. Now, is our prayer life? Do we pray to God giving Him thanks and praying for others? Or do we pray just when we want something or need something? That's a habit a lot of people get into, is they only speak to God when there's something that they want. But they never thank God for the blessings that they have each and every day. The lukewarm Christian has been described this way. The lukewarm Christian believes in doing only what is required, what he thinks is just enough to make it to heaven. We as Christians are doing just enough and we're lost already. God demands all. Right? He doesn't demand just enough. There's no such thing as just enough to get to heaven. The lukewarm Christian gives God what is left over from the week. He doesn't set aside his contribution when the paycheck comes. He waits until everything's gone and then says, okay, I've got this much left. The lukewarm Christian lets Jesus control part of his life, but not all of his life. Maybe we're wonderful Christians on Sunday. Well, then when we get back to work on Monday, things change. The lukewarm Christian loves himself and this world more than other people and heavenly things. He puts the world first. 
Do we participate and promote our church? Do we speak up and work to improve it? Or do we complain and post on social media about all the things that we think are wrong in the church? Do we tell our friends or do we post on these social media outlets about how awful these things are in our church? And as was mentioned last week, I believe, wonder why people won't come when we ask. Of course they're not going to come because you've told them how bad everything is. You've never told them the wonderful news about Christ. If we have things wrong in our church, we need to correct them. We need to fix them. And as hard as it is sometimes, if there are things that you know are wrong in this church, if there's an individual that is doing something wrong, the Bible says that you're supposed to go and talk to that individual. You. If I know something's wrong, I'm supposed to go and talk to that individual. And as a Christian, that individual should accept that conversation. If there are things that are wrong with the church as a whole, then you have a responsibility to come to the eldership. The eldership will do what they can to try to correct those problems. Yes. They don't want to go to them. They may send the elders or somebody else to do it for them. Right. But we have to be mad at that. We have a problem. The Bible specifically says, go to that individual. Right. In love. In love. And pray about it. Right. And we'll resolve We are to go to that individual. We are to talk to them about it. But as I said, we go in love. We don't go to criticize. We're not there to put that individual down. We're there to get that individual back into Christ. That's the purpose we're going. Yes. And if someone comes to us with a problem, then we need to listen to that problem. Because, one, they may have a very good point, and we may have something in our life we need to correct. Or two, it may be a situation where they misunderstood what was going on. And then we can give them the entire story and they can understand what is happening. When our congregation needs something, are we the first one to volunteer? Or are we always the last one to volunteer? Every congregation needs leadership. We need workers, we need teachers. Do we love the Lord enough to step up to do what we, excuse me, to step up or to do, or do we just say, Lord, Lord, as this lesson points out, do we do really what needs to be done? Why do we wait for someone to come and ask us to work? If we see something around the building that needs to be done, why do we wait for someone to come and ask us to come and help with that? If we know someone who's lost and someone that needs help, needs discussion, why do we go to the preacher and say, you need to go visit? The scripture tells us, is it? The scripture tells us we need to go visit, right? We hire a minister to serve in our pulpit to help us to learn, to understand, to study. We didn't hire a minister to do all of our personal work. That's not how this works. 
You see that a lot in the denominational world where the preacher controls everything. That's not how it's supposed to be in the church. That's not how the church is supposed to work. You look at uh, some of the religions in the world, the man that they designate as the priest is the one that's responsible for your soul. That's not scriptural. We're all responsible for our own. We're to work out our own salvation, the scripture tells us. If we honestly examine our lives, we'll see that all of us have opportunities for growth and improvement, myself included. But if there is something that the elders need to understand, to know, come and talk to the eldership. I promise you, it will not bite your head off. If there are problems in the church, we need to know. We cannot know everything. In so many instances, in item two, people say, Lord, Lord, and will not go all the way with the master. We will follow the Lord all the way, or do we follow the Lord all the way or until it becomes difficult? Do we concentrate on the spiritual or the eternal? Do we think more about our physical life than we do those? The Lord, through one of his apostles, has commanded us to give, but this is where many throw off the rule. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. They cannot give up their time of their work or their means because they really have not given themselves first. He had a story in this book. It says, a preacher once wrote to a wealthy and influential businessman requesting a contribution. The preacher received a curt refusal, which ended by saying, as far as I can see, this Christian business is just one continual give, give, give. After thinking about the matter for a while, the preacher wrote back and said the following reply, I wish to thank you for the very best definition of Christian life I have ever heard. (laughs) That is what Christians are supposed to do. We are to give to each other. We are to give to the Lord. We are to give to those in the world who are in need. That is the Christian life. If you're not willing to do these things, then we're back to this idea of being lukewarm. Many who profess to be followers of Christ often do not think there should be public prayer in Christ's name because some who do not believe in him might be offended. So rather than offending these people, they offend Christ instead. They preach of being inclusive and accuse those who don't accept sin as being intolerant. But we need to correct them. We need to let them know that we want everyone to be included. Included in heaven. Not included in the worldly things. Many who profess to be followers of Christ often do not think they should... Oh, sorry. Skip down. Lost my spot there. We all have family... Friends, co-workers who are involved in sin, but we do not speak to them about Christ. We do not think and do not consider that by not speaking to them, we help to condemn them eternally. We may be the only person they know who really, truly understands the gospel. And if we don't speak to them, who's going to? 
Many say, Lord, Lord, but, and he lists forsake the worship, Hebrews 10.25, where human names instead of God's name, Acts 11.26, permit cursing to flow from their mouth, James 3.10-12, do not show brotherly love, 1 John 4.20-21. and 21. Many of the younger generation coming up condemn religion, and it's often because we don't do what we preach. They see us talking about religion. They see us telling all about what we need to do. But then when they watch us, we don't do it. The question condemns lip service without the heart of religion. Christ criticized the scribes and the Pharisees for their lack of commitment in religion. Our Lord taught us that one of the conditions of acceptable worship is that it comes from the spirit, our man's inner core. See that in John 4 and 24. Profession is one thing, but service is something else. Titus 1 and 16 says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. A religion that is worn on the outside shows itself as long as it's being cheered on them in public. We see an example of that in Matthew 23 and 5. But it miserably fails in the small, unobserved, unaccredited acts of discipleship. The reason for this is that whatever is good is done springs from an ulterior motive. In spite of what they profess, there is no Lord in it. The works that they do are for their own praise and glory. The question reproves the doctrine of salvation by prayer only. We see a lot of this in the world today. We fail to understand that God's law is above national law. When our Constitution was written, we have freedom of religion listed, and the purpose of that is to keep government from overtaking our religion and directing our religion. That's the reason it's there. But we need to understand the concept of freedom of religion is something that's somewhat unique to this country. But freedom of religion is not from God. God has always been very specific on how we are to worship Him. And He does not accept any religion that's not in accordance with what His laws say. We go back to the story of Nadab and Abihu, right? They may have thought what they were doing was good. But what they were doing was in direct violation of what God told them. And because of that, they lost their lives. We are free to worship God only in the way that he directs us, not in the way that we want. We talked before about the idea of liberalism, and that's what liberalism is, is the idea of being selfish, putting my wants and my desires above what God tells me. God did not allow, did not direct in any way, shape, form in the scriptures music in the church. But many go ahead with that anyway because it's what they want. He did not show up until 600 years after the church was established. I find it very difficult to believe that God gave us all the information that we needed to be saved and then forgot to put in, I want music. Right? 
Why did it take 600 years for us to discover that God wanted music? The Bible tells us that it is complete. It's everything we need for every good work. But yet it does not mention music anywhere as far as worship is concerned. By the time you just came around, it all stopped. They used silver and gold trumpets to get the people's attention. Like right. They all like we have a church. Mm-hmm. But they got their attention. There was no more music played. Right. So we're getting this idea of prayer only. Um, it's inconsistent for the alien sinner to pray to the Lord for forgiveness of their sins when the Lord has already given a law with which the sinner may comply and have those sins forgiven. We see that in Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, and 38. We think this idea of prayer only. We hear that so often in the world today. It's easy. It's convenient. Now we talked about liberalism. It's what I want, right? I want easy. I want convenient. But if a criminal prays for forgiveness, sincerely wants forgiveness, but yet he doesn't stop his criminal activity, is he going to be saved? If someone has murdered people and he understands that it's wrong and he prays for forgiveness for what he's done, but he continues to murder, do we really believe because he prayed he's going to be saved? In prayer we speak to God, but we read that God does not hear the prayers of alien sinners. In John 9 and 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. In Mark 10, when, we asked, when asked directly how to receive salvation, Christ instructed the man not to pray, but of what he must do in order to receive salvation. Rich young ruler believed in Christ. He actually went and sought him out. But yet he wasn't willing to change. When God establishes all with which man may comply and receive a blessing, it is wrong to pray for the blessing without obeying the law. The Christian also rebukes the doctrine of salvation by faith only. Many who have said, Lord, Lord, will stand condemned to judgment because they have not done the Father's will. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How do we keep God's word if we never follow his commandments, if we never do his work. We see John 12, 42 and 43, it says, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear 
of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. Again, do we really believe that these men who believed in Christ but did not confess who Christ was, it did not do what he commanded, were saved from their sins just because they believed? Why would the Lord accept someone as a Christian who will not work for him? Faith will not justify unless it's strong enough to produce works. The Bible says in James 2 and 24, See ye then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. This does not discredit the idea of faith. We talked about it before. Faith is essential. Faith is the basis on which everything else is built. Without faith, we will not repent. Without faith, we will not confess Christ as our Lord. Without that faith, we're not going to be baptized and we're not going to live the life a Christian should live. Faith is essential to every bit of that. But faith is not the only thing. I can have faith in Christ. I can understand who He is and I can believe with all my heart that Christ is Lord. But if I never repent of the sins that I've committed and I never stop doing them, then I'm not going to be saved. It cannot be just by faith. And then looking at in the last section, it talks about the Lord emphasizes the practical side of Christianity. It is true that Christianity demands a change in intellect, we see in John 8, 24 and 32. But it is equally true that it demands a changed life. We see that in Romans 12 and 2, and Colossians 3, 7 and 8. We shall be judged not by the profession of our belief in Christ alone, but by our works. John tells us in, chapter, I mean, in Revelation chapter 20 and 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So Christ expects us to do something. Otherwise, we would not be judged by the things we've done. The profession of our faith is good, but the practice of our faith is better. The scripture talks about the fact that we're to help those in need. And it doesn't do any good for us to say, go away and be filled, but never give them anything. All right? So you, we can be a Christian and someone in need comes to our door and says, oh, don't worry, the Lord will take care of you. You know, go on your way. You're fine. And we have not fulfilled the law, right? We have not provided. The Bible tells us that we are given work to do so that we can earn money for what reason? To embellish our lifestyle? No, that's not what it says, is it? It says we're given work to do that we can earn to give to those in need. So the Lord expects us to give to those in need. Now, it's up to us how we do that. We cannot support everything. We cannot support everybody out there in need. There's no way one individual can do that for everybody. But we're all expected to do some work in that area. Whether you want to give to an orphan's home, if you want to give to something like World Bible School, if you want to give to a specific missionary, there are things that we can do that we can support, even though we can't do everything.
The world is not so much interested in our profession of that faith as in our practice of that faith, right? Do we practice our Christianity? Do, do we watch what we do? Do we watch what we say? Do others see us doing things we shouldn't be doing, going places we shouldn't go? Do they see us routinely skip church services? Do they hear us complain about the church and its members? Do we then wonder why they won't come to services with, services with us? What people see and hear on the outside reflect what is truly on the inside. And they understand that. When we look at Matthew 12 and 34, it says, How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So when we are talking about these things, we're putting down church and things of that nature, people are seeing how we really, truly feel inside. When we post those things on these social media, social media people are seeing how we really, truly feel inside. We see all these things on TV where people make statements and they come back and say, oh, you know, I need to apologize for what I didn't really mean. Well, no, you meant it. You just got caught when you said it. The heart will speak, right? Okay, we're about out of time. We're going to wrap it up. Um, and I guess probably a lot of you do when you're around the house, you're doing things, you've got music going on in the background or something like that. And so this morning when I was getting ready, there was some music going on in the background. It was playing one of the songs that probably if you're in this class, you've heard a million times because it, I think it came out like in 1980. And I'm not trying to support the group or the lives that they live in any way. And I'm not trying to justify the things that I'm sure that they did while they were popular. Many bands do, but... It caught me on the very last verse of that song. It said, uh, the dream is gone. I have become comfortably numb. So as Christians, have we reached that point? Have we become comfortably numb in our work as Christians? When we became Christians, I'm sure there are things we wanted to do. There are family, there are friends or something we wanted to convert. There are good things that we wanted to support. All kinds of things that you were on fire for Christ when you first became Christians. Is that dream gone? Okay, our time is up. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.